Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I have a fantastic guest. I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Patricia Musum. If you're watching this on Path 11 TV, you're going to see the beautiful cover of the book that we're going to be discussing that she wrote. It is called Beyond Metaphysician's Revolutionary Prescription for Achieving Absolute Health and Finding Inner Peace. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Dr. Musum before we get to the show. She's a pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. She has distinguished herself as a practitioner, educator, and research scientist, and has been an influential force in shaping the landscape of healthcare options available today. Dr. Musums is the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being, offering tools and resources for individuals and communities in person and online. She lives pretty close uh, to me, a few hours or so, in New York City, and she recently released her book, Beyond Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Musum, to the Path Lemon Podcast. Thank you, April. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you for having me. Yeah, I think we're going to have a really great conversation. There's so many different little notes that I have and parts of your book that just really touched my heart. And I just really took in very deeply because one of the things that we're going to touch on probably throughout this podcast is something that I think is really profound in your writing and in your book which is really trying to get the message out and teaching people that we heal just by being, mm. not by doing. Mm. And how to, you know, help yourself when you're going through a lot of different emotions, right? You tap on a lot of different emotions in here and any physical pain. How do we come to this pain? How do we come to our struggles and just be with it? And in that is the secret of healing. So I am very excited for you to share this secret with my listeners <laughs> and me. But, you know, what I learned about you is that your story really kind of started in your early 20s out in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I used to be a therapist in a psychiatric hospital. So I did that for about six years. My background is I'm a, me a licensed mental health therapist, but been kind of moving away from traditional clinical therapy for many years as I've gotten into this field of, of studying consciousness because your experience, and I'd like you to talk about it, is I guess probably one of the reasons why I decided to leave that field and just really kind of felt like people were coming in with what the clinical mental health field could kind of look at as um, these diagnoses that we'd like to give people mm -hmm. and really kind of taking their experiences away from them, labeling these diagnoses and that becoming their identity. And I've seen a lot of people become conflicted with that. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to start with that story because I think it's a pretty profound one and will probably speak to many people who are struggling with what's going on, you know, with their emotional states. Sure, sure. Yes, that, that experience that you 
you mentioned or you allude to, I write about in the introduction of the book. And it was an experience that I had in my early 20s that did indeed change my life forever and completely transformed how I came to understand life, the reality of the world, the universal reality of what is, and much about Western medicine that I had come to believe at that time. What happened was I had about one and a half to two months. I don't really remember exactly because of how it ended, but one and a half or two months of really intense psychic openings, psychic experiences. I'd had glimpses of psychic experiences or psychic openings earlier on in my life when I was a child, but they were never really long enough for me to hang on to them to to even label them or name them or, or talk about them. But this was a much longer period of time in which I was having really acute sensitivities. I was, for example, able to see the future happening, okay? I, I could see events that ended up happening, events that weren't normal, like the sun rising and sunsetting that we all know happen or the weather that we know about from the forecast. But strange events like something on, that I couldn't predict. I could hear people's thoughts in my imagination. I could hear their, their thoughts. I knew what people were thinking. I seemed to have the ability to what, what we call tele, telekinesis. I could um, move matter with my mind. I remember holding a car key and it just melted. The, the metal just changed shape in front of my eyes. I seem to have a really strong kinship with dogs, something I've always, I've always had. And by the way, for those who are watching or listening, I have a dog. He usually gets very mellow. This is just a form of a warning for our sex show. <laughs> he usually gets very mellow when I'm doing these types of activities online or on the phone. Sometimes he gets so mellow, he goes into a deep sleep and he starts dreaming and making noises. So if you hear anything outside of my voice or April's voice, it may be my dog chasing girl dogs in a dream. Anyhow, getting back to my story, I had this very strong feeling of kinship with dogs in particular. I could communicate them just through the through my through it through the intention of communicating and listening i could hear what was going on for them and this this experience that lasted a month and a half or so was also accompanied by an incredibly deep strong feeling of peace not mania that we typically describe in quote psychiatric terms but just peace just just a knowing that everything was well, everything would be well, no matter what was going on in the world, no matter what was going on in my life, in terms of my school and my relationships, everything was okay. And it was, it was a very wonderful type of peace that I'd never felt before. I'd never felt before. That experience ended quite abruptly. It ended with my literally being, I use the term very strongly, incarcerated against my will in the psychiatric ward 
of a hospital. And I'm speaking quietly because I still have some shame around that all. I still have some feelings around it all. And I'm in my home office and sometimes you can hear outside my door what's going on inside my home office. So, yeah, so I, I basically told people, I basically told the wrong people or I told people that didn't understand the nature of spiritual awakenings and psychic experiences. Maybe they weren't the wrong people. Maybe they were the perfect people because I don't regret in retrospect that quote incarceration either because it was an incredible experience that was horrible at the time. I was placed on four different medications. I was told I was this, that, and the other thing in terms of psychiatric diagnoses. I was told I was destined to be medicated for life, that this was a chronic debilitating illness that required pharmacologic intervention to manage. And the medications worked really, really well. They numbed my mind. They dulled my mind. They numbed my senses. They slowed my body. I couldn't quite make sense of what it was like to be in a body. I had a difficult time with cognition, with understanding. They definitely had a very strong and powerful impact on, on both my mind, my affect, my emotions, and my psyche. But in retrospect, it was a really rich experience because it, yet again, taught me more about Western medicine and its limitations. And it was fuel for my purpose in my work and life path, really. My work is really my life path and being a conduit to exploring completely expanded ways of understanding health, healing, and reality. So that experience taught me not just about reality, but about the limitations and the inherent necessity of Western medicines expanding, not just expanding, but transforming. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it, it was deep and profound. And years later, when I was in my medical training, I did some training in psychiatry and that experience and that ward, that locked ward was a gift because it allowed me to hear those patients that came into the psychic ER, those patients that were admitted with what was called disordered thinking or just dis, dis, dysfunctional affect. And I listened to them and I heard them in a way I knew I never would have listened to them or heard them had I not had that personal experience. Sure. And now wasn't it your mom that kind of came to you in a moment and kind of gave you a little bit of freedom to come off of those medications and become more of yourself. Yes, yes, it was. And I write about this a little bit in the book as well. My mother was, she's no longer in physical form. I very much feel she's still present here. Uh, and that's another topic we can get into if we have time on afterlife phenomena. But my mom was really ahead of her time. She was a very progressive thinker, a very open-minded, a seeker. And she turned me on to a lot of practices and, and healing approaches before I went to medical school that I knew nothing about. When I had this experience, she came up to my bedroom one day after I'd been months and months and months on these medications. I'd gained a lot of weight. Several of the medications increased appetite. They caused a kind of metabolic syndrome in the body physiologically. I was really depressed and stuck and inertial. I felt horrible. And she came up to my bedroom one day 
And she said, we have to get you off of these medications. This is the only thing we can do to get you back to feeling well again. And at the time I was, you know, at home living in my parents' home, I had to leave college, which was very shameful experience for me, just in terms of my own personal journey. It was all kind of secretive what had happened to me. I was going to see this outpatient psychiatrist in the town in which we were living, which was in Northwestern Massachusetts. And this person would just see how I was doing and see how I was feeling and rewrite the prescriptions and send me home. And that went on for months. So the upshot of it was my mom my remarkable mother literally day by day weaned me off of those four medications by by cutting taps capsule by 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 emptying capsules and and making one capsule what well, half a capsule and so on by cutting tablets and slowly but surely i returned to the person that I, that i'd always been my my sensations and my body returned my mind my emotions returned the the way I experienced the world returned. And that was that was a remarkable, remarkable gift that she gave me. Yeah. So then you went on um, to med school, you had said, and, you know, did some more work. And so if we begin to kind of fast forward a little bit up to today, what would you say was the inspiration behind writing this book and kind of getting this information out there? That inspiration came from a number of personal experiences, more personal experiences, as well as my professional desire to reach people, to give people tools to empower people to navigate their own lives. I, after that experience that I just described, I journeyed through life, as we all do, and I had more experiences that were teachers. I had experiences with health. I had experiences with the nature of being human and with living in a body. I had, quote, illnesses, unquote. I had challenges with with just feeling feelings and knowing what it was supposed to be about to be human. And those were formative teachers as well. And along the way, I was inspired partly by my experience, also partly by my studies in college in which I studied physics and music and philosophy, never medicine. I was really not a fan of biology, I'll say, even though I, medicine would be my calling. I was very interested in Asian philosophy. I was interested in what was really okay, as we say at the time, the parallels between modern physics and Chinese medicine and how these two very disparate fields had very similar, very parallel ways of understanding nature and reality and mind and consciousness. So I got interested in Chinese medicine. I got interested in a practice called Qigong. I got interested in new ways of thinking about health and healing. And I went to medical school with all of these ideas in hand. I went to medical school because I wanted to be a change maker. I wanted to be a bridge and a catalyst for helping people approach life and health with an expanded paradigm, a new way of thinking beyond Western medicine. So I'm actually forgetting exactly what your question was. I'm sorry. I was going no, no, on a okay. long, long diatribe there. Yeah, I just, I just uh, kind of wanted to get a little basis of 
the meaning behind why you wanted to put all this together because you you did and share a lot of okay, right, yeah, right. personal stories yeah and I do have a follow-up question there's okay. a thing in my madness what okay. <laughs> okay getting back to the book we're talking about the book yeah <laughs> well yeah I I started writing some years ago maybe 15 years or so ago I started writing articles for um for late for for public general publications I've been prior to that I've been written more academic type of articles, scientific publications and such. But I decided I just wanted to reach the general public with a message that wasn't coming through Western medicine, that wasn't coming through the channel that I was educated within, that my colleague physicians weren't exposed to. And that message was about health and healing. It was a message beyond what Western medicine teaches us. I wanted to offer people tools and I also thought it was very important. I didn't cotton on to this in the very beginning when I first had the book idea, but when I shared my story, a number of book writing people said, you have to share your story. This is going to make your book much more, much more important. You have to tell your story, all of your stories. And I wrote this book to give people tools for navigating, not just health, but navigating life. And a key theme of this book, which you said so eloquently when you first started speaking after your introduction, was that healing starts and comes from simply being, not from doing. That is a key theme. And a key theme con- parallel to that is that navigating whatever's going on in, in our lives, whether it's a health issue or a challenging circumstance in our life comes from first being, not doing. And I teach people not just the science behind that, not just the ancient wisdom that concurs with the science nowadays. And I use a lot of science to support my cause because I'm wanting to not just preach to the converts, but to perhaps attract skeptics as well. But I also offer tools for doing that in the book, for experiencing that being moment no matter what's going on. Yeah. And in the book, you give a lot of tools. So it's not just, I mean, usually after each chapter, you have journaling exercise. A couple of the techniques that you talk about in your book is breath work, mirror work, mind body sensing, and you have journaling assignments for the reader. So with all of the stuff that you have done and you have healed quite a bit of your own stuff using these techniques, also the technique of being. I'm just curious to know, and this is more towards the end of the book, but I'm going to start it at the beginning um, <laughs> just to get this question out of the way because it ties into your first experience of Western medicine. Is there a place for Western medicine or do you feel like in your experience that we really can heal all issues even the the physical issues that feel like they need Western medicine, mm-hmm. you know, is there a place for Western medicine and these complementary medicines, or do you feel like Western medicine kind of has it all wrong? That's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it because it's a point that I I most want to express to your your listeners, your viewers. Absolutely, there is a place for Western medicine. Absolutely, absolutely. However, what I'm going to say next may surprise, and we need to read the book (laughs) to hear what I'm going to say next, but all diseases are theoretically curable. All diseases are theoretically curable. There is no chronic debilitating incurable disease 
or there are no chronic debilitating incurable diseases in the manner that Western medicine leads us to believe. Okay. So first of all, all diseases are theoretically curable. And all diseases are theoretically curable without Western medicine, which may sound a little out there for some people. And I talk about just how that can be in the book, in the latter parts of the book. I talk about miracles of healing. And I talk about how miracles of healing are the natural order of things. But again, just to reiterate, all diseases are theoretically curable and all diseases are theoretically curable without Western medicine. Now, does that mean I can cure myself of a particular diagnosis without Western medicine? No, not necessarily. And I'm a prime example. I suffered for many, many years with uterine. I was able to help women in my practice avoid surgery and to heal those uterine tumors with the various approaches that I use in my practice. However, I wasn't able to do that for myself. That wasn't part of my journey. I was able to shrink those tumors for a while with various approaches, and I used naturopathy, I used Chinese medicine, I used Ayurveda, I used all the practices that I'd learned about in mind-body medicine. But for whatever reason, it wasn't part of my path to experience a healing with those integrative, complementary, and alternative therapies it was my path to eventually have surgery to remove those tumors from my uterus. However, I will also say that the ultimate healing wasn't the surgery. The ultimate healing was healing the roots of that disease. And all physical diseases have an emotional component, have an energetic component. And it wasn't until that I completely healed those roots that I was healed. In many cases, such types of tumors grow back. We can remove them. The energetic template, the emotional template, the vibration, if you will, is still in the body. The root source of that tumor is still there. So yes, to get back to your question, there is a place for Western medicine, but that place for Western medicine is completely individualized and unique for each and every one of us. And there's a chapter in which I describe that in detail. And I summarize that chapter by saying, it matters not so much the approach we choose, but how we approach that choice, mm. but how we approach that choice. So first of all, we need to expand our thinking to be open to the notion that anything can be healed and anything can be healed beyond Western medicine, but it may be our path to utilize medicine in the West for our healing. Right. And I think, too, you know, you bring up a really good point that maybe sometimes people aren't offered this as a way to heal, but really taking a look at that emotional connection. And I think in your book, you had said that the tumors in the uterus are the tears, right? Mm. They're the tears of them, you know, and there was there could be like emotion in there of grief yes. or sadness. Yes, yes. Yes, actually, thank you for mentioning that too. That was a metaphor that I learned from, from a very gifted Ayurvedic practitioner by the name of Dr. Fazant Lad. I was starting to teach courses at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine here in New York City. And, you know, when you teach something, sometimes you need to learn some more than what you're teaching about. So I wanted to expose my students to Ayurveda. So I needed to learn about Ayurveda and my health gave me the opportunity to do so. And I learned through Ayurveda that the metaphor for uterine tumors is that the tumors are the tears of the ovaries 
crying because they're not able to express themselves fully. And in fact, uterine tumors are often quite common in women who have never had children like myself or in women who have had abortions like myself. The, the, the organ was, let's say, suppressed in completing its function, if you will. Now, that's just an interesting Ayurvedic perspective. Interestingly enough, in Chinese medicine, there are other metaphors for tumors that are linked to emotions. When we talk about the relationship between emotions and physical health, anger is often linked to tumors. I had a lot of rage. I came in with a lot of rage, according to my mom. I was an angry kid. I was seemed to have been born with a lot of chutzpah, as we say in New York. <laughs> in fact, I was younger than the kids in my class. And the teacher said, well, she's got so much chutzpah that she's going to be okay. You know, you can, you can set her ahead because she's got a lot of this anger energy, which was interesting perspective I thought from a teacher. But yeah, in Chinese medicine, tumors are often linked to rage. And I had a lot of rage and I had a lot of rage in the context of relationships and intimacy. And the uterus is the second chakra. And we think about that in the chakra system. For those of your listeners and viewers who are familiar with the second chakra is linked to relationships and intimacy. And I had a lot of issues and undealt, undealt with emotions, including and especially rage when it came to relationships and intimacy. So you might say that that was an energetic and emotional template for that imbalance to occur in that part of my body. And I had to heal that to completely heal those tumors, even though they were surgically removed. I had to really heal that root. Right. And also like the energetic component of it too. I've heard a lot of my energy medicine teachers talk about that. Even if you have, let's say, for instance, the thyroid removed, re mm -hmm. right? That's something that a lot of people can have removed and they function, they have to go on medicine, whatever. But you still need to address the energetic of it. Or for example, um, even phantom limbs, right? There's been many cases where people may have, be an amputee, but they could still feel as if mm -hmm. their hand or their leg is still there, which shows that there's still an energetic body. And I would agree with you, you know, more of the work that I've done over the past maybe three to five years in really looking at this mind-body connection and some authors that have been able to, like Louise Hay, there's an, another woman, I have the book over there, but I can't see the binding, I forget the name, but, you know, more people that are really looking at the, the emotional connection and with Chinese medicine as well. Anyone that I have come across I kind of take these books out to use it as like an emotional diagnostic tool to be like, well, can you relate to this? And, you know, when I have shared that with some clients and even looked at it within myself in this past year with some physical things that have come up, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I could totally validate, you know, mm -hmm. this is right. This is what, what they're yeah. saying. So, you know, I love that you make that connection. You really do talk a lot about that in the book, which kind of leads me to now go back to the first part of your book when you're talking about in the first uh, chapters about using the metaphor as a guest house. And there was one line in here that I absolutely loved, said a calm, peaceful mind creates a calm and peaceful body. So I was wondering if you can explain what the metaphor is about the guest house and how you apply that to the way that people live here on earth. But I also think there's a very strong connection to our minds being peaceful, and that does reflect in the physical body. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yes, well, first a little background about The Guest House. The Guest House is a poem by Jalaluddin Rumi, who was an 11th, if I'm remembering correctly, I write it in the book, an 11th century Sufi mystic 
who wrote, in my mind, in my opinion, incredible poetry and prose that is still relevant today that we can all relate to. He writes about the human condition. He writes about the human condition. So the guest house is one of his poems. And a little bit of background. I was having a lot of anxiety about writing this book. I was having a hard time figuring out what it was going to be and how it was going to manifest. And I was up being present with that anxiety in the middle of the night when I literally being present with it. And I was just drawn to walk over to my bookshelf and that book literally fell off the shelf. <laughs> it literally fell off the shelf. Not only did it fall off the shelf, but it opened on in onto that poem. And that poem became my mentor and my muse for the book. Yeah. So the guest house is a metaphor and it's also a real place in my book, the way I describe it. The guest house is a place that we can enter where we can be completely taken care of, where we don't have to struggle. We don't have to try to get well. We don't have to try to make things better in our lives if we're navigating difficult circumstances. We can just completely surrender to be taken care of. We can completely surrender to be to being taken care of. And it's a place that we surrender to being taken care of by being in the moment, by being in the moment with no matter what's going on. And this is, this is the connection to what you just first mentioned about a healthy, peaceful, a peaceful mind is, is a peaceful body. It's by being present in the moment that we can cultivate peace of mind. It's by being present with what is in the moment that we cultivate peace of mind. It's being present with whatever feelings are coming up, whether it's anger, anger or anxiety or fear, or we may call it rumination. We may call it grief. Whatever's coming up, it's by being present with that emotion that we find our path to peace around it. What we resist persists. By being present with it, we cultivate this place of peace. And this place of peace is where we need to be mentally for healing to happen. Healing only happens if we have a calm mind because a calm mind generates a calm body and turns on what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is a system that we need to have turned on for healing to happen. So now I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Because <laughs> in, be <laughs> in the beginning of the podcast, you had said, well, I'm talking a little quietly here because I'm, I still have a little bit of shame, right, mm -hmm. of what had happened. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through being present with the feeling of shame? So if you were to, in this moment, right now, mm -hmm. this kind of came up a little bit in our conversation. And every yeah. time you probably have to tell this story and, you know, feel get into a place like a podcast like this and feel very vulnerable and, mm -hmm. you know, to talk about your abortion, to talk about being on these meds of, you know, going through this experience, there's still a little bit of shame there. And mm -hmm. so, so I'd like to just put you on the spot. I hope that's okay. And like, Boy. what does it mean? Can you like walk us through of what did it feel like in the very beginning of this podcast when you felt like you had to lower your voice and, you know, because you didn't want anybody maybe necessarily in the room to hear and you, you identified it. You said, you know, there still is some shame here that I'm still working through. So can you walk us through what that looks like maybe to show and listen for our listeners how to be mm -hmm. present with the emotion that comes up? 
Yes. And I think the best way I can do that is to share one of the tools that I describe in the book called Mind Body Sensing, which is one of what I call the absolute health tools. They're tools for cultivating presence, for helping us to be in the moment with what is, right? So the mind body sensing is a technique in which we literally connect to our, our bodies. It's sometimes called somatic sensing or somatic experiencing. We, we find the feeling in the body. So what I ask people to do and what I'll share with you that I can not really do with you on the podcast, because I really need to close my eyes and do some breathing, but I can tell you a little bit of what's feeling for me when I'm not focusing on a hundred percent, but I'm a little bit aware because we're having a conversation is that we close our eyes and we just check in with the feeling. What's the feeling? And it can be helpful to give the feeling a name. So I'm going to give that feeling a name of shame. And sometimes that term can shift as well. Also, what's coming up for me is humiliation, embarrassment, but, but shame is the loudest. And then what I do, and this is how we can be present with a feeling, is I imagine just dropping down into my body. Just I, I let my awareness, I think of sending my awareness to my physical body. So I'm feeling that feeling. And I'm checking in and I'm asking myself, where am I finding that feeling in my body? And I may find that feeling as a particular sensation, a very specific sensation, like a pain or a funny feeling, or I may just have my attention travel to a particular part of my body. And as I said, it's not possible for me to do this completely on the podcast. So I'll do it a little bit, <laughs> but what I'm sensing, and it's also from my memory sense, because I've done this on my own, is that when I drop into my body to find where that shame feeling is, it's around my heart center. And I'm also noticing, which is something that happens always, it's completely natural, other feelings that are coming up. And I'm noticing the feeling of grief or sadness arising. So feelings go and come, feelings come and go. One arises, one passes, others enter. So as we become aware, and this is all about cultivating awareness, this being here now is about checking in with what's going on. What am I feeling? What am I sensing? So as a new feeling arises, we do the same thing. Where's that feeling in my body? And again, I'm really drawn to my heart center. And that's often where we feel sadness, where we feel grief. And it's often where we might feel shame. And then other feelings may arise. I know I also have still, because I'm just a human being on the journey of life and the journey of life presents us with experiences. I'm not free from feelings. That's just an absolutely natural and normal aspect of being human. Sometimes anger arises, you know, sometimes anger arises that this is something that happened to me that I have so much shame about that I'm afraid to tell the world about. You know, there's some podcasts I haven't wanted to talk about it. And I haven't. I said, you know what? 
I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I don't think I want to go there. But if you want to learn more about it, you can get the book and read about it in the book. <laughs> so there's part of me sometimes that anger, anger comes up. And that person who was born angry still has a lot of, a lot of anger in my energy. That anger um, is not a bad thing. I want everybody to know that feelings are not bad or good. Feelings are normal and natural. It's how we experience them that may be supportive or not supportive for us or for others around us. So sometimes anger can come up and, okay, I can hmm, check in with that anger. And where's my body expressing that anger? And I'm feeling that right now in my jaw, in my jaw. I'm feeling a tightness in my jaw. Often we feel anger in that area. We might feel it in the neck or shoulders or you may feel it somewhere else. Anybody who's listening or viewing, we feel that feeling wherever we feel it in the body is normal and natural. So yeah, that's a little bit of a process of, of how I can get in touch with feelings. And hopefully that was helpful on how you can be present with feeling. Yeah. And then I guess the next step would be once you become present with it, right, you identify it within the body. Is this where then you just kind of sit with it until it dissipates? Like, what do you do with it once you're present? You know, once you get present, then what are you looking to? Are we moving the shame out? Are we moving the anger out? But that's doing to me, right? Like my mind is like, okay, let's do something about this. Yeah. You know, what do you mean? Just be with it. So do you just sit with it, honor it? I know you had an exercise, one of them where you can bring a smile to your face and just kind of smile. I think that's more when you're trying to cultivate the feeling of fun and joyfulness. But um, Tantanich Han, um, a Buddhist monk, I remember in one of his examples, he would say, if the anxiety arises, smile at it, take care of it like you would a baby, you know, laugh at it and, yeah. and make funny faces until it like calms down. So, yeah. so what's your process once you become present with it? Do you just move into that state of being until it feels like something releases or what do you do? That's a very good and important question. We do not attach ourselves to getting rid of feelings. So the process and the tools in the book are not about getting over the anger or getting rid of the anxiety or getting over the grief or getting over whatever the feeling is. It's by being present with the feeling that the feelings shift. It's by being present with the feeling that the relationship in our brains between the amygdala, a little bit of neuroscience here, that part of our brain that is essentially the emotional thermostat that registers emotions and the prefrontal cortex, which is that part of our brain that can step back and say, wow, I'm feeling really angry or I'm feeling really sad or I'm feeling a lot of shame, but I'm not subsumed, consumed, driven by or paralyzed by any of those feelings. So it's by being present with the feeling that that feeling shifts, but not by trying to shift it. And if we have a trying desire, that's yet another feeling. That trying desire is, oh, wow, I really don't like this. I want to get rid of it. So that's yet another feeling to explore. Right. Yeah. And I love Thich Nhat Hanh, and I'm a fan of his books, and I'm a follower of his teachings, and I have many of his books. In fact, one of them is on my bedside table as we speak. <laughs> And I love this notion of smiling. And yes, I do talk about creating a smile on the face, which literally can change our brains. But we cannot do that to eliminate anxiety from our lives. We first has to be, have to be present with the feeling 
for it to shift and be present with it. And when it shifts in the moment, then we can conjure a smile. We may need to do this often, frequently, because feelings come and go. Feelings come and go. We're never going to be free from feelings. So I don't agree that we can just simply neutralize a feeling and eliminate it by just smiling and changing our brain chemistry in the moment. We can change it in the moment, but we can find a more deep-rooted path to healing it by being present with it, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I love that. And I love what came to mind when you were saying like, you know, we have to do something with it makes me think about how you could you could be triggering like the prefrontal cortex, you know, and you're kind of coming out of fight or flight. But when you think about, OK, let me do something with this, it, it kind of can put you back into the autonomic no- nervous system, right? Pop you out of the parasympathetic like yeah. you were talking about. And yes. that action of doing can almost be that fight or flight mechanism of like, okay, let me fix this and takes you out of this presence and this calm state, which allows things to heal. Yeah, that was beautifully put, April. That was so well put, exactly. The moment our mind wants to fix something or change something, we are in a doing mode. And we are engaging that sympathetic nervous system, which enables us to do, which we definitely need. As a New Yorker, I need that when I'm crossing the streets to make sure I'm aware that there's a taxi cab about to run a red light or when I'm walking my dog and we're encountering a dog that my dog wants to bark at, right? Right. Yeah. But yes, when we want to change or try to fix things, when we're talking about feelings in this situation, not protecting ourselves from aggressors or, or, or red light running cabs, that is taking us away from that place of being that is taking us away from that place of calm and the way to work with that is to just cultivate awareness what is coming up for me in my mind what am i doing now what's going on now oh i have a sense of urgency i have to do something mm-hmm. and that sense of urgency is usually nearly almost all the time fueled by fear fueled by fear so it's exploring, what's that fear? What, what's the fear that I have to do something? What if I don't? What ha- what's going to happen? Mm. Yeah. Great. Huh. And, and mind you, can I add one more point here? Please. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A lot of talking here. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. This book is not about psychiatry. This, is, this book is about how the, the role of our thoughts and our emotions and how we experience the world around us affects our health. And how our thoughts and our emotions and how we experience the world around us can affect and help us navigate everything that's going on in our life. So we're talking a lot about issues that are often within the realm of psychology or psychiatry in our conventional psychological and medical disciplines, but they're absolutely ubiquitous in all of our lives. So it's not the realm of psychology or psychiatry. It's just the realm of human nature. And in fact, Hippocrates was one of the founding fathers, who was one of the founding fathers, there were founding mothers, but one of the founding fathers of my Western medical tradition said, it is more important to know the person who has the disease than the disease the person has. And I think that is really brilliant wisdom. And we're slowly starting to return to that today. Yeah, Yeah. that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for reminding us of that, which kind of can lead into, I wanted to ask you because you do say in your book that miracles are the natural of 
natural order of things. And I have delved into A Course in Miracles before, and that sounds very much like A Course in Miracles. So I wanted to hear a little bit about maybe your journey with that or, you know, how you came to really also believe that. Sure. Yes. Yes. Thank you. This is probably the favorite part of my book. It was, I think, the hardest part of my book to write, but it's a favorite part of my book because it's the nearest and dearest to me in terms of my own journey. I have borne witness to miracles. I've borne witness to miraculous cures that defy conventional medical thinking. I've borne witness to miraculous phenomena that defy how our brains typically experience the world around us, how we experience nature and reality with our five senses. I've borne witness to phenomena that defy the notion that consciousness is just part of our brain and it's unique to us and it's born when we're born and it dies when we die. I spend a chapter describing these notions of consciousness, that consciousness may indeed be non-local, that some aspect or element of us exists before we're born and persist after we die. And I know this is a big theme of your work and your podcast. Um, I've, as I said, born witness to miraculous healings. I offer up that both ancient wisdom and now modern science speak to these notions. And I offer up also that we can experience the miraculous ourselves when we get out of the way. And we get out of the way by simply being present. And even if we're skeptical, and I'm really hoping that I can reach people that are skeptical, not just people that are converts to the themes in my book, but even if we're skeptical, it's by being with that skepticism, by being with those feelings of disbelief, by being present with what is, we can open ourselves up to the moment where these miracles happen, where we literally dissolve the constructs of what we call three-dimensional space in classical physics. I talk a little bit about that in the book for those who want to learn more, where we dissolve the constructs of linear time, meaning what time is it now? It's a little after 4.15 today, and theoretically 4.15 precedes 4.17, and what happened yesterday preceded what happens today. But in this greater reality, there is a greater reality that transcends these thinking brains, understanding of the world around us, these five sensory ways of understanding and perceiving the world around us. And that reality defies how we understand space and time, how we experience space and time. And when we can be open to it, there are phenomena such as near-death experiences, afterlife experiences, consciousness experiences, miraculous healing, miraculous healings that defy conventional medicine. We can experience those miracles ourselves. And I say, we can, let's say we can put ourselves up to be open to experiencing these miracles when we can just simply get out of the way. And again, we get out of the way by being present. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question or satisfied what you were hoping I get into. <laughs> yeah, no, but when you were talking about that you have kind of witnessed these miracles, you gave an example early in the book about your father. And after, you know, your father had had a stroke, but then Years later, there was a, I don't want to say, I don't know if it was necessarily a doctor, but a doctor that um, had helped him with Qigong, kinesiology, and medicinal remedies. And some of your father's symptoms completely disappeared and he was healed, but then he had reverted back and like didn't want anything to do 
with this medicine right. and then kind of went back into the same symptoms that he had had after he had the stroke. So was that one of the miracles that you witnessed? That was the first miracle that I witnessed. My dad had a stroke when I was in my early teens. He was very young to have a stroke. He was 49 years old. He was left from that stroke hemiplegic, meaning he was paralyzed on one side, on his left side, and partially aphasic, which meant in his case, he had difficulty finding the words he wanted to say. He also spoke very differently than the dad that I knew growing up. He was German by birth, um, but he spoke English like an Englishman. That's a longer story that I'll get into here. But the stroke left his speech very different. His, his phrasing and his syntax was very different. He went to work with a man who was quite remarkable. He was a physician scientist by training. And my dad started his treatments and his speech literally came back. This was nearly not, this was nearly 20 years later after his stroke. He did a lot of therapy. He progressed arithmetically, as we say. He made progress. He improved in his speech, but it never returned to normal. And from this man's treatments, his speech was transformed, literally. He was one person one day, literally a week later. He was speaking like the father I used to know in the same syntax, using phrases he hadn't used for 19 years. So that was a miraculous healing. It was also a testament to the notion that um, Western medicine, again, is limited in its understanding and its beliefs about disease. At that time when my father had a stroke, we believed that neurons don't regenerate. Well, clearly we know now that the brain is very plastic. When you talk about neuroplasticity. So that was a defying, defying experience as well that demonstrated that the brain, definitely something was happening in the brain, that my father's speech came back. Unfortunately, as you, as you mentioned, my dad didn't continue with it. And because he didn't continue with it, he didn't worsen. He just returned to the state that he was in prior to the treatment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm so glad that you brought that into your book. And I had said to you when we were exchanging emails, I was like, oh, my gosh, she talked to Robert Monroe. You know, that's what, you know, because you had brought up two things that we have in our second documentary, The Path Beyond the Physical. And when we went to the Monroe Institute, you know, our second documentary became a lot about the life of Bob Monroe and learning about the hemi-sync music and the binaural beats. And at the time, Skip Atwater was the executive director, and he happened to be one of the army personnel on the classified mission of Stargate, which for those of you, if, if this is new, our our military had this whole classified mission, now declassified, called Stargate. And they were training psychic spies because they had heard that Russia was doing this. <laughs> so it was this whole thing. And, you yeah. know, Skip Atwater had talked about how they were kind of looking into Bob Monroe's Institute to see yeah. what is going on over there. You yeah. know, what are they doing? So, so I, I know that this kind of goes off a little bit, but it's, I'm just so curious because I know a handful of people that know Bob Monroe, you know, he's now passed, but yeah. that you got the chance to actually meet him and speak with him. And so what was that like? Yeah, it was quite a remarkable experience. Interestingly enough, I went down there with a colleague of mine and, and my brother who's, who's where we're very like-minded. We have incredibly parallel and, and parallel interest in all these things. Although he's a, different sort of scientists. He's a physicist and a neuroscientist, but we went down there and uh, we had experiences in these little pod-like places. But interestingly enough, I felt nothing. I had no experience other than relaxation. 
which has often been my case when I was doing research with healers in the lab. All the scientists in the lab felt something, but I felt nothing. But maybe it's good that I felt nothing. So I could truly be, you know, not sort of the... But it was remarkable. We we hung out with him and we heard stories of uh, just remarkable stories. I mean, he was indeed a remarkable man, a, a seeker. He, 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 he told stories of all sorts of consciousness bending, mind bending phenomena, something he called soul retrieval and past lives. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of drawing a blank on, on a specific experience to describe, but suffice to say it was, it was a very special meeting with somebody who clearly was very grounded in the real world. You know, he was a, an entrepreneur. He was a successful entrepreneur because he was a successful entrepreneur. He could fund these interests in otherworldly things. And he did a lot to promote the field of consciousness explorations. And in fact, for, for viewers and listeners, I write about him in the book in the context of all of the research, including I mentioned Stargate that April mentioned, into phenomena that challenge our conventional constructs of consciousness and space and time, afterlife experiences, past life experiences, parapsychologic phenomena. So it, it was a very special time. Even though I didn't have an out-of-body experience in that little pod, it was quite an, it was quite an otherworldly experience being there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I really got from learning about Bob Monroe and the Monroe Institute and all the work that Mike and I have done for Path 11 really goes hand in hand with your book Beyond Medicine is that Bob Monroe said, if you can just accept that you are more than your physical body, yeah. right? And that's yeah. a lot of what you're talking about. Too. Yeah. You know, it's not just about the physical, it's beyond medicine, right? It's like looking at ourselves beyond this physical exterior and mm -hmm. the symptoms maybe that we're having and to go beyond that. Yes. So, um, and th there's my dogs now barking, <laughs> <laughs> which might be a cue for us Perfect. to wrap up soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that was really fun, you know, to read and just kind of felt a little full circle. I mean, one of the nice. coolest things about doing this podcast after doing the films is like this spider web of of consciousness mm -hmm. and connection of people, yeah. you know, who have come across our paths and who end up coming on the podcast that we had no idea that they were connected, you know, to the Monroe Institute or somehow, some way. It's kind of like that seven degrees of separation. Yes, yes. yeah. Um, so that's just was very cool. And I have to say, I really... Um, enjoyed this book. I really enjoyed the techniques, you know, just having my own private practice and working with clients. I'm always looking for new ideas and, you know, journaling assignments. And, you know, I work, I work personally with a breathwork teacher. So I just love, you know, breathwork. And there's just so much to this book. So thank you so much for, you know, working through whatever it was that you needed to work through <laughs> to write this and feel the confidence. And so where can people find your book and find more information about you? Thank you, April. Thank you for that. People can find more about me at my website, which is www.transformationalmedicine.org. And my book, Beyond Medicine, is available wherever books are sold. There's a link on my website to various sellers. Great. And with the transformational medicine, what else do you do? I mean, do you offer workshops, classes? Are you working with people one-on-one? -on -one? If people hear this and they're like, I need to meet this woman and they're listening from New York City and they're like, where is she? I want to find her. What other services do you offer? 
I offer health consultations. I offer mind-body healing sessions. I offer workshops. I offer retreats. We're not doing any in-person retreats right now. I do everything by phone and online presently, and I'm available to anybody wherever they are. So you don't have to come to New York City to see me. In fact, I don't need to see somebody in person to do a health consultation for them. Great. I bet you don't. That's how I work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Musum. This was really uh, wonderful. Again, for our listeners, Beyond Medicine is the book. Check it out. We will have her website in our show notes. And I thank you all so much for listening. And I hope that you were able to take something out of this. And again, I just want to remind you all, a calm, peaceful mind creates a calm and peaceful body. And may you take that with you, courtesy of Dr. Musum. So thank you all so much for listening. And I will bring you another amazing person next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com and be sure to use coupon code podcast30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path11TV today. Bye for now.